Do you want to test for breath ketones and need a breath ketone analyzer to do that? Then let me introduce you to the first reusable breath ketone analyzer. It's called Ketonix, K-E-T-O-N-I-X. Ketonix.com is their website, and you've heard me talking about them here for years, and now they have a brand new technology that I think you're going to like. It's the Ketonix Bluetooth with battery. This is the latest version of Ketonix that's come out here in 2017. It connects with the latest iOS and Android software, and it's available for mobile devices like smartphones and tablet. It is a reusable instrument that can be used thousands of times, and you can record your breath ketones locally on your mobile device, smartphone, tablet, or online account at ketonics.com. You can anonymously contribute your data to studies of ketogenic diets. So again, it's the brand new Ketonics Bluetooth. Head on over to ketonics.com and get the latest and greatest version of Ketonics. We all know how important fat is on a ketogenic diet. So it's time to meet the keto gang at pureindianfoods.com. Pure Indian Foods has 12 delicious fats and oils for your healthy, low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic lifestyle. So what is grass-fed ghee, you ask? I'm glad you asked. It's also known as clarified butter and is a fabulous source of fat-soluble vitamins like vitamins A, D, and K2. It's an excellent omega-3 to omega-6 ratio of less than 2. It is extremely low in polyunsaturated fats and as such is a perfect cooking fat. It literally, you guys, smells just like buttered popcorn. Pure Indian Foods is a fifth generation family-owned ghee business and now they have 12 different varieties and flavors for your healthy ketogenic lifestyle. So meet the whole keto gang at pureindianfoods.com and be sure to use the coupon code JIMMY at checkout and you'll get 10% off your first order. Pure Indian Foods. Coming up in episode 1299, an LLVLC classic with Dr. Johnny Bowden. Connecting and educating and making the world a more informed and healthier place. You're listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. You've helped change so many lives and give us all the courage to take on the rest of the world. This is the longest running health podcast on the air today. You've done so much to spread the word about how diet matters. Over 1,000 episodes strong and counting. The amount of lives that you've changed at this point is incalculable. And now, here's our host and international best-selling author you're like the LL Cool J of podcasting Jimmy Moore hey guys it's Jimmy Moore and I'm here to tell you about an LLVLC classic episode that I'm really excited about featuring Dr. Johnny Bowden he has a book called Living Low Carb and he was the very first one in the low carb ketogenic community that reached out to me when I first started blogging. It was about a month after I started the Living La Vida Low Carb blog way back in 2005. And he was very encouraging to me, sent me an autographed copy of his book, Living the Low Carb Life at the time. It's now called Living Low Carb. And it was just a fascinating uh, you know, first encounter with this man who I have a lot of respect for. We're really excited to have him come as a featured speaker on the 2018 Low Carb Cruise next year. So I thought, okay, maybe some of you don't know who Dr. Johnny Bowden is. Let's go back way into the archives and listen to the very first interview I ever did with Dr. Johnny Bowden. 
Welcome back to the Living La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. And today I am so pleased to bring back yet another one of the returning guests to the show. He has been on so many times. Johnny, I think you could actually host this show. You've been on so many times, but I'm so thrilled to have the great Dr. I thought Johnny I was Bowden. hosting it. Yeah, no. you are hosting it. There you go. The great Dr. Johnny Bowden is here with us today. He is a board-certified nutritionist. He has a Ph.D. in nutrition, a master's degree in psychology, a well-known, nationally known expert on the subjects of weight loss and nutrition. He's written so many books, I'm not even going to bother telling you all of them, but just go to Amazon.com, type in Johnny Bowden, J-O-N-N-Y-B-O-W-D-E-N, and you will see a great plethora of books from this man. He's written a a lot of really good ones, uh, The 150 Healthiest Foods on Earth. He's also written way back when a book called Living the Low-Carb Life, and that book was out there for many years when I first started my blog Johnny sent me a copy and said you know great work with what you're doing here's my book check it out I read that book and I went oh man I could have used this book going into my low carb <laughs> lifestyle and yet now there have been so many new diets to come along in the past few years his publisher said you know what let's update it let's expand it let's call it living low carb controlled carbohydrate eating for long term weight loss Dr. Johnny Bowden welcome to the show Oh, thanks, Jimmy. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. I just never know that we can ever fit it all in in 45 minutes, but it's a pleasure to be with you as always. Well, and it's why you're here over and over and over again, because you, you do you. A, an outstanding job presenting the information, and, and I think it's a, te- it's a gift, uh, a gift from Thank God you. to be able to uh, communicate really complicated issues like low-carb living and trying to understand all the intricacies of it in such a way that even... Uh, even a caveman can do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the cavemen did it. They did it quite know. well. And we're that, just trying to go back to what they did very successfully for for eons. That's exactly right. Now, for those of uh, those uh, two people that are listening right now that don't know who Dr. Johnny Bowden is, I've given a brief kind of overview of you. Tell us a little bit of your story, how you got involved and, and interested in the world of nutrition and health. Well, I was a a fat, overweight smoker, not a musician in the 70s and 80s. And um, I, you know, like many people, I, you know, health and nutrition was a second career for me. Of course, it's been over 20 years now, but... um, I I started by wanting to get myself in a little bit better shape, and uh, it started in the late 80s, and I started, uh, you know, I was a a musician, and I was touring a lot, and the actors were all in great shape, and they got all the girls, and they went to the gym, and I thought, well, that looks like a lot of fun, and I got a couple of them to kind of show me how to lift weights, and then little by little, I stopped smoking, and I started losing a little weight, and I started getting some of my health back, and um, liked how I felt, and just got kind of bitten by the bug and decided to become a personal trainer and got certified at that and decided that wasn't enough. So I collected six different certifications in personal training and gradually started working in that field and, and taking less and less music jobs. And uh, I started with Equinox when they first opened their very, very first uh, gym on 76th Street in, in uh, Manhattan. And uh, I was there for about seven years. And over that time, um, you know, most of the nutrition that we were taught as personal trainers came from the god-awful American Dietetic Association <laughs> and uh, organizations like that. And it was very, very conservative, and I was very much a, a partisan of that. You know, I thought, you know, low fat, less calories, and exercise more, that's the answer. But as I worked with clients, 
for a couple of years, it became fairly apparent to me that a lot more was going on than just eat less and exercise more and cut the fat. And, um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough around the mid-90s to meet Barry Sears, who was coming through town and giving a talk. And I sat down with him and had a couple-hour conversation um, and I remember saying that he loves to tell the story. He's told it many times, and he actually wrote it in the intro to my book, Living Low Carb. Uh, I said to him, well, Barry, if you're right about this, then everybody else is wrong. And he, <laughs> quite, quite typically for Barry, said, that's exactly right. right. <laughs> and it really kind of opened my eyes to the fact that maybe there was more to this whole nutrition thing than we had been taught. And, you know, long story short, I, I went back to school. I became, I got my PhD in nutrition. I became certified through the American College of Nutrition, the Certifying Board of Nutrition Specialists. Uh, and somewhere in there transitioned from personal training, which I did fairly well, but which many, many people can do a lot as well or better. And I transitioned into nutrition first as a one-on-one uh, a person seeing clients and then ultimately, you know, writing books and columns and speaking and doing media and running the website and, you know, educating uh, people in the field of health, nutrition, and ultimately in all of the areas that are antecedent to that, such as energy and living longer. You know, my latest book is uh, The Most Effective Way to Live Longer and, you know, anti-aging medicine and natural cures and health and nutrition and all of those things. And that's my real passion and that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. Now, Johnny, I've always wondered this about you because you are quite the prolific writer. I mean, you have a book that comes out. I think every time I sneeze, a book comes (laughs) out from Dr. Johnny Bo. (laughs) They keep me tied to the the Macintosh here. They won't let me out. (laughs) Oh, you're a Mac guy, too. I love it. I love it. I knew I liked you for a reason. Uh, Uh, You know, you you seem to come out with book after book after book, and I don't hear within what you've told me about your background and with what I know about you, how you became such a talented writer. Has writing always been a passion for you, or is that something you still have to work at? No, the interesting thing is that before I did any of this, um, from second grade, I was in special writing classes. I was I had taken out of second grade because I was a behavior problem. They said, stick him in a writing class. He seems to be good for that. <laughs> so I've been writing. I mean, even when I was a musician, I wrote columns on music and on, yeah. on you know, theory and, and uh, you know, stuff like that. So I, I, I've been a writer. That's the one constant in my life from, from second grade on. Oh, that is so funny, Johnny, because that's just about the same thing with me. I wasn't taken out of second grade, but I have been a writer and, and always was recognized by my English teachers at, for my writing yeah. ability. So it, it's just funny how, how uh, you, you just take whatever subject you're most interested in and apply and, it to yeah. what your talent is and and for uh, for you and me, it seems to be the, the writing aspect. Now, writing and yeah, writing, speaking, and teaching are my are my three strengths. And, and you are um, awesome at all three. Thank you, and thank you. But, but uh, so so, I'm kind of a natural teacher, and uh, I love writing, and I think I've gotten better at it since second grade. But I that's something I always did, and even before the books, uh, I wrote at the time that I Village first opened in 1995. It was mm-hmm. a, at the time, you know, kind of early days of the internet. Not everybody even had a computer. We all right. used to dial up, and AOL was the only email right. client. And um, <laughs> I, I wrote days. a month. I wrote a weekly column for I Village. There were probably 200 of them. 
online somewhere, you know, floating yeah, yeah. around. So I've been writing, you know, columns way before I, I was writing books. Yeah, they Google your name. It's it's like Googling my name. You'll find a bazillion articles out there. There's a lot of them, yeah. yeah. And yeah. now, you know, I write for America Online now. Yeah, that's as cool. As well as, you know, half a dozen magazines. I was going to say, well, who, who do you not write for now? Write for now? <laughs> uh, Vogue. Yeah. <laughs> no. mm, I, I, I have a little niche. I write a column for Better Nutrition magazine. I write a uh, column for Clean Eating magazine, which is yeah. published by Oxygen. Uh, and I am the nutrition editor for Pilates Style, so four times a year I have a big, you know, article and and column in there, and um, you know, again, America Online every week I write for the Huffington Post, I know that's your favorite. Uh, oh yeah, I love Huffington uh, Post. Yeah, I know you do. And, um, <laughs> and, and and of course the books. So the right. right. Is there a dream, there a dream uh, publication uh, or media outlet that you'd like to be on? You know, I I don't, I'm very, you know, I'm on the editorial advisory board of Men's Health, and, um, which I'm very proud of, and uh, I I think, you know, I mean, uh, at one point I I really would have loved to have a byline article on Playboy, (laughs) Um, you know, or or any really big national magazine like that, but but I'm very happy with the outlets that I have and with, you know, I'm in in front of the public and Men's Health all the time. I don't get to write articles for them very much because they have in-house writers, but I get you know asked ask the expert things all the time, and so I'm I'm pretty happy with my media profile. I, I would say there's no one magazine that I've just always wanted to write for that you know won't talk to me. <laughs> right, right. You know, yeah. You think about Time Magazine has like Dr. Dean Ornish on there as kind of one of their regular health contributors. You just wish that they would have somebody like a Dr. Johnny Bowden on there to kind of counterbalance uh, some of the nonsense. I, I, I mean, well, yes. <laughs> You're, you're, I, I guess you're right. If, uh, now, something like Newsweek, the Wall Street Journal, right. you know, a New York Times op-ed page, those are, you know, those are, those are the, the, the Oprah Winfrey show of, of publications. You know, that's like if you want to get on the Oprah show, you want to write for the New York Times or for the Wall Street Journal. Or, yep. But, um, you know, again, I'm, I'm very pleased that, you know, people read my stuff and I get fan letters and I have my newsletter, which, you know, takes a lot of writing because I send out three stories a week and... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I seem to be. I, I, people seem to read my stuff and and get something out of it, and that makes me very happy. And that's always a good thing. Yeah. Well, let's talk about living low carb, controlled carbohydrate eating for long term weight loss. Now, I like I said in the intro, I've been a big fan of you, obviously, for many years because of your first book, Living the Low Carb Life. Why did you and your publisher say, you know what, it's time to update this? So what what was it that kind of said? Hmm, low carb may be making some of a comeback. Let's get this new book out there, or let's get this book back out there again with some of the newer diets that have come out. Uh, what was it that well, kind of actually, was the impetus for? Go ahead. Okay, the, the original Living the Low Carb Life was. It was almost two books. Book number one was everything that we know about low carb with very, very, I, I, it's one of the better annotated books of the ones that I've written. I, I, they haven't all been as thorough in terms of like research, mm-hmm. uh, notations, not in terms of research, but in terms of like giving the actual studies and, and footnotes for everything. But I wanted with that, because I was taking such a, uh, a, a kind of contrarian position, if you will, of course it's not contrarian to you and me, but in the 
in the world of, you know, the American Dietetic Association, you know, arguing for a lower carb intake is definitely, uh, you know, count, kind of revolutionary. So I wanted to make sure that every statement I made, every single one was backed up with studies and references that you could go and check. And I, so I, I annotated it very thoroughly. Um, but so so living a low carb life was on the one hand the history of low carb diets the successes that they've had uh, the myths the myth busting things like ketosis and oh it's bad for the kidneys and it's you know and you're going to lose calcium and all these different things that have been you know hanging around forever and the Atkins diet's all about pork ring pork rinds and you know all the stuff we've heard so a lot of that was debunking those myths a lot of the book was talking about about the effect of lower carbohydrate eating on triglycerides, on heart disease, on polycystic ovary system uh, syndrome, on diabetes, and, and all of that. Um, and then the second part, if you will, of the book was a review of what was then the most uh, common and popular low-carb diets. And remember, in 2004, they were coming out faster than you could uh, <laughs> literally you could count them. I mean, like right. you said, every time you, you sneezed, there was a new one. <laughs> so I reviewed about 17 or 18 of them. Uh, maybe 14 in the first edition and 17 or 18 in the second edition. Um, so it, it was a review of all the diets and, and a discussion of them, but it was also a little bit more than that. It was, you know, the, the what is low carb about? What does it do? What what are the commonalities in these diets? What what makes them work for people? And what kind of ex- results can be expected? And also in that book, um, I wanted to also point out where I who I thought different dietary programs in the low-carb world might be good for because, you know, not as we know, no one diet is good for everybody. And not even, even if you've chosen low-carb, there may be different uh, paths to follow that may appeal to different kinds of people and may be suited to different types. And so I, I wanted to address that as well in the original book. And the second book, in the, in the new expanded edition, there was a lot of things besides the fact that new diets have come out. For example, uh, you and I both know, but it's not widely known uh, about the, the project that they did up in Canada, which came out in a movie called My Big Fat Diet, where right. they literally put an entire town on the Atkins diet for yeah. a year. Um, I wanted to write about that. So there's an entire chapter on My Big Fat Diet. Loved it. Uh, there's an entire chapter on fat cholesterol and health to really debunk this whole... See, here's the thing. Let's, let's go back. The only reason that America is terrified of saturated fat is because they're afraid of cholesterol. Mm. If cholesterol turns out to be a big old red herring, if it turns out to be nothing to be afraid of, if it turns out to be a bad predictor of heart disease, then the whole reason for being afraid of fat collapses. Yeah. So it's very hard to talk about fat and saturated fat without first addressing this bigger fear, which is cholesterol. So I wanted to really get into the whole cholesterol hypothesis to discuss the fact that that the idea of good and bad cholesterol is is a very old idea that we now know that there are at least five different types of quote-unquote bad and about four or five different types of quote-unquote good. They behave differently. They have different risk factors. And, and without going into that, you can't really demolish the whole fear of fat thing. So I wrote an entire chapter, which I'm very pleased about, called, you know, Fat Cholesterol in you or fat cholesterol in health and that's all new in there and then of course there were the 
um, addendums to the supplement section and to the, you know, for example, there's a chapter on diet drugs and supplements and I, I, Ali had come out since the original book. So oh, I yeah, that ally is awful. Yeah. Right, awful. And, um, um, it's so awful I never even pronounced it correctly, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. you know. It's yeah. not an ally, then, for, your ally for your health. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then the other thing, of course, as you mentioned, were there a lot of new diets that come out, and so yeah. I updated it to 38 diets, and they're not all low-carb diets. No. I put some of them in there. There's a little section called fitness books, yep. because a lot of the fitness books talk about diet, even like people like Jorge Cruz, who have no business talking about nutrition on any level, or Harley uh, Patterson, you know, Pasternak, and these trainer guys that, that uh, are in incredibly misinformed about nutrition and low-carb diets yeah. and make insane you know, comments about them and, and just throw them out there like they're, uh, like they're the truth. And so I wanted to address some of that, even though those are not low-carb books, to kind of see where, uh, what people are saying about low-carb, both good and bad. And, and the, 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 so those were the bad, <laughs> you yeah. know, the, the, well, the three-hour diet and, and books like that. And but there were also... Huh? I was going to say, one of them was uh, Julian Michaels, who just recently... Not just, bad. <laughs> Not too bad. Not bad, Not but bad. she's also having some issues now being sued over uh, some weight loss supplement that she's promoted. Um, I don't know oh, yeah, I didn't about address that. That. That, that, came, that all happened afterwards, right. and that's really a separate issue, and the, and the prosecution of people for these things has so many different ramifications, you that's can't right. really tell what's going on. I, I addressed her Biggest Loser cookbook, and I was surprised to find that there was not a, there, it was not bad it right. was really not bad um, and I was surprised and, and the other thing that I, I was pleased to find and one of the reasons I included non-low carb books is that I wanted to show that in the interim in the interim five years since the original uh, living the low carb life and the current living low carb um that low carb had made a lot of inroads into the mainstream. Yep. So you were now seeing some mainstream books that by no means would be considered low carb that were actually adopting and, and integrating some of the concepts that at one point would have been considered revolutionary. And, That's right. You know, uh, and, and they were actually accepting some of these things and, and making them more mainstream. I mentioned, for example, that Starbucks, for God's sake, now has a little, you know, one of those little plate things that you can take with you that's quite, you know, friendly to our kind of way of eating. It's, it's a hard-boiled egg, a few couple, a few little pieces of cheese, some grapes, and a, a tiny little whole-grain bagel with some peanut butter. It's under 300 calories. It's mostly protein. It's low, relatively low in carbs, and I wanted to show how some of this has actually become incorporated into the mainstream. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so I, I put in some books like Walt Willis, you know, the, the, the Eat, Drink, and and, um, um, and Way Less, and right. things like that, because I thought it was very, now, Walt Willis, would, he's, for people who might not know, is the the um, head of the uh, Department of, of Nutrition at the Harvard School of, of Public Health, and, you know, maybe the most respected nutritional epidemiologist in the country, very mainstream, but he has moved away from the food pyramid, and this is like a Nixon in China moment. I mean, yeah. here's the 
main guy at Harvard saying, you know what, the food pyramid's a crock. And and moving away from, yeah, he hasn't quite, uh, he still kind of buys the saturated fat hypothesis and stuff, but he has definitely moved uh, quite a number of degrees away from the Dean Ornish uh, faction of the nutritional, uh, you know, uh, rainbow. And I thought that that was worth mentioning. Even, uh, you know, I even mentioned Mehmet Oz's book, um, which was certainly not a low-carb diet, certainly moves away from sugar and, and, and moves away from a process carbs, and I thought those were important trends to notice in living low-carb. Yeah, Dr. Oz recently came out and pretty much blasted any uh, high-fat, low-carb diet because of the so-called health risks of eating saturated fat. It goes back to the cholesterol uh, hypothesis that he still buys. It does, and and let me tell you something. I've had all, in between, on on the commercial breaks on his radio show when I was interviewed with him, I think that if you you talk to him offline, he's Mm -hmm. a little less stringent about that than you might think. Right. Well, it was funny because on the Larry King show, when Gary Taubes was on uh, with him and Joy Bayar and Julian Michaels and all those, you know, he was like, oh, I, I pretty much like a, a, a low-carb diet. I pretty much eat low-carb. And yeah, I, I think that term low-carb, when you throw it out there, uh, it, it, you almost need a caveat. What kind of low-carb diet are we talking exactly, about? Exactly, Jimmy. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons, I, it was one of the reasons that I really uh, suggested doing a revised edition of Living Low-Carb, because I wanted to point out that, you know, in back in 2004, we were very divided into camps. You know, we were the low-carb people versus the high-carb people. And what's happened is uh, the boundaries have gone a little more amorphous. You know, with people kind of accepting that high sugar diets and high processed carbs are really bad for you. And even, you know, here's a perfect example. As you, I'm sure, are aware of this study called the Eco Atkins Diet, yep. where they actually put people on a vegan version of Atkins, if you can imagine <laughs> such a thing, you know, and they reduced carbs. Maybe it's not what you and I would consider low carb. It was 120 grams a day. It's, it's, you know, the upper, it's the upper limit of what might be considered a lower carb diet. But the point is that here's this very mainstream group of researchers writing in a very mainstream and very conservative medical journal and putting people on a higher protein, higher fat, lower carb diet and getting phenomenal results and maybe they're not quite as dramatic from a weight loss point of view but it shows that that some of this stuff is getting a mainstream acceptance and it's not quite as black and white like you're either in the low carb camp of stage 1 Atkins 20 grams a day or you're in the American Dietetic Association camp. So I think that 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 was stuff that was important to point out that, that low carb has a different meaning now and you know when you uh, when you ask people are they on a low carb diet a lot of them will say no but when you ask them if they're watching their sugar they'll say yes and that's new yeah yeah and it's a good new trend that I think has just slowly kind of crept into the culture that people mm-hmm. and even the American Heart Association now says, you know, you, you probably should cut down on your sugar intake. You know, and these are huge strides that just a few years ago you thought that'll never happen. Exactly. 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 
Listen up, everyone. I finally found a way around all those long grocery store lines. It's called Personal Trainer Food. Visit JimmyKeto.com and you can learn all about this great keto-friendly meal delivery service. And they make some really amazing foods, you guys. You can skip the grocery store. They have a huge menu of foods to choose from that are all your favorites. It's fast, easy, tastes great, and will help you stick to your low-carb lifestyle. Use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout and you'll get $200 off any 28-day program. Again, visit JimmyKeto.com and you'll save some serious cash. Best of all, you'll have all of your personal trainer food while everyone else has to wait in line at the grocery store. Personal trainer food. Are you ready to take your ketogenic lifestyle to the next level? Go to energizemyhealth.com where you will learn all about the Beamer therapy for your health. Now, I feel so fortunate to have discovered this life-changing technology and I feel compelled to share it with all my fellow ketonians and fasters out there. This technology could very well change the face of modern medicine as we know it. So what is Beamer therapy? Beamer therapy consists of exposing the body to low-level pulse electromagnetic fields. Think of these magnetic fields as sound waves that permeate through every cell in the body. These magnetic signals are delivered by way of a full body mat and several focused applicators. While there are several systems on the market currently, each one touting the benefits of their unique waveforms and frequencies, the most important thing to consider when choosing among them is proof of efficacy. And not only does Beamer hold five worldwide patents on their proven technology, but the Beamer has also been shown in a blind study to be far superior to the rest of the competition. Beamer enhances blood flow, oxygen supply, cardiac function, physical fitness, strength, and stamina, concentration, mental acuity, stress reduction, relaxation, sleep management, and so much more. Again, go to energizemyhealth.com to get all the full details about Beamer and get your Beamer today. Well, let's talk about the format of the book because fans of your first book will see a very familiar format. After you do uh, kind of the history of low-carb diets, you talk about why low-carb diets work, uh, uh, the aforementioned fat, cholesterol, and health chapter, uh, mm-hmm. the so why isn't it everybody eating a low-carb diet, so forth and so on. You well, that's a go new through. chapter. That, oh, that's, that's a new a one new- as well. Yes, that's a new chapter. So why doesn't your doctor know about this? Right. Why, if this is all true, if every piece of research that I recount in the book and give footnotes to, if this is all, you know, stuff that anybody can find on PubMed, and they can in the National Institute of uh, Medicine Library, it's all online, how come your doctor doesn't know this? How come your doctor is still frightening you about, God forbid, eating anything with fat? Right. And I, I discussed that, and I discussed the various reasons why this has not become mainstream. And they are social, economic, uh, traditional. There's a lot of different reasons, but I thought that was an important thing to address. Uh, because if what Johnny is telling us is true, how come every, how come my doctor doesn't know it? And there's a very good reason your doctor doesn't know it, and I talk about that in the book. Yeah, Dr. Richard Bernstein uh, sent me an email late in 2009 about the whole group think mentality. 
reality. And I did a, a blog post about that that kind of kind of hammers home a lot of the points that you make in that chapter because uh, it you. is we all just we all know that, that eating fat's bad for you. So therefore, eating bad's fat uh, fat's bad for you, whether it's true or not. <laughs> we we right. just all know it's true. So right. it's it's, it's exactly. interesting how that's become part of the the whole zeitgeist of this nutritional. Yes, book. exactly right, exactly. And then there is there such a thing as the metabolic advantage of low carb diets was another chapter. Um, was that That's a new, a new one, one as well? Oh, yep. wow. tell us why you did that one. Um, because you know, there's that was one of the big controversies uh, about Atkins was that he claimed that. Um, well, I th- all right, let's go back a little bit. He claimed that by changing the macronutrient, macronutrient means protein, carbs, and fats. Those are the macronutrients, and he claimed that by changing the mix of those, even if calories were the same or even a little higher, mm-hmm. you could still lose weight. And but that basically put into question was the the whole. Um, foundation of, of dietary advice, which is that it's all about calories. And what right. he was saying, well, it's not all about calories because right. food actually has a hormonal impact. This is what Barry Sears said as well. Mm-hmm. has a hormonal impact. A uh, hundred calories of sugar does one thing to your blood, uh, to your blood sugar and to your insulin and to your fat storage, and a hundred calories of fat does something quite differently, so all calories are not created equal. And I think this was, this, this, and he called this the metabolic advantage, and it was a very controversial term, especially for those who believed it's all about the calories, and I think it also created a certain polarization with those saying calories don't count, and the other one saying calories are all that counts, and in my my view, the truth is somewhere in between. Right. Calories do count, and calories are not the whole story, <laughs> and that's what, I, that's what I talk about in the metabolic advantage. There are some studies that show that you can eat slightly more calories on a low-carb diet and still lose weight or lose more weight than you would at even a few hundred calories less on a high-carb diet, but people need to know that that metabolic advantage is not, it's not a free lunch and it's not indefinite. You can eat 10,000 calories more on a low-carb diet. You might be able to get away with three or 400 more. So there is a bit of a metabolic advantage, but it may not be, it may not be quite as big as, as uh, some people like to believe, and it's also not non-existent as some people like to believe, and that's what I addressed in the in the question uh, in the chapter on is there really such a thing as a metabolic advantage? Yeah, as of the uh, recording of this uh, particular podcast, you have not read New Atkins for a New You, but in there they use a new terminology instead of uh, metabolic advantage. They use the Atkins edge. Oh, I like terminology. That. Uh, yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, yeah. So I like that. It, it kind of it, it takes away a little bit of that kind of arrogance, I guess, that, that comes yeah. from the sound of metabolic, metabolic advantage. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. Um, and uh, once again, you also include a lot of the myths about low-carb diets. And uh, did you add any new ones? To oh, the yeah. There were only five in the old one. I think there's eight or nine of them in there now. Wow. Cool. So, and, then, and then, like you said, you went through 38 of, I love how you say, mostly low-carb diets and what they can do for you. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and the format is pretty uh, familiar with people uh, familiar with your first book. You, you basically list the name of the diet, the author, and then you put it kind of in a nutshell, uh, mm-hmm. Johnny's Nutshell, and yep. the, the Cliff Notes version. Then you go into uh, an in-depth look, uh, which is still a pretty good Cliff Notes. I mean, you don't, uh, people don't have to buy 100 books. No. Uh, 
wow. or all 38 of these books and say, oh my gosh, well, which one's right for me? Kind of what right. you did was you did a quick synopsis of, uh, of all the major points of these diets. And then at the end, you, you say, all right, here's the lowdown. Here's my how many stars I give it to you. Was it out of six stars? Is that... Out of five. Out of five stars. Um, And then you kind of gave an italicized, okay, here's the recap about why this particular diet might be right for you. And it really does give a nice kind of side-by-side comparison because we're all different, Johnny. And I think this Mm -hmm. is something you and I have been hammering (laughs) together now for the past six years. Find the diet that's right for you, follow it exactly, and keep doing it for the rest of your life. And that's what you've done by identifying each of these uh, books. Mm-hmm. Um, and you gave, uh, you know, certain ones got some pretty good marks. What were some of the ones that were better, the five star, and what were some that eh, probably not quite as good? Um, what were some of the lower ones? Well, you know, the thing is, it, it, there are there are some good points in a lot of different books, but they miss. Other things that I I think perhaps that I would maybe take issue with. I, I'll give you an example. Um, I'm a huge fan of Lorne Cordain. I think he does yeah. brilliant work. He's a great researcher. Um, his paleo diet, wonderful stuff. You can't go wrong. But he completely buys the saturated fat thing. He's changing. Uh, Oh, well, interesting. Well, he, he was, I mean, as of when I read that. And so, I, you know, you can't fault Lauren Cordain. He's a, he's a giant in the field, but, I, you know, it takes some issue with the saturated fasting. Okay. Um, you, Suzanne Summers, summersizing. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, she's got some, you know, she's a force for good, and she's got some good ideas, but there's some food combining stuff in there that's other nonsense. And so, you know, I, I, I have some issues with that. Um I'm a huge fan of the Eads, and they can practically do no wrong. So they have a new book out called The Six-Week uh, uh, Cure for the Middle-Aged Middle. I thought right. it was a very, very good book. got very high marks. South Beach, uh, you know, I think is, is watered down, is Atkins without the commitment. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's like a stage one is Atkins and stage two and three are the zone. And so I don't think there's an original thought in that book. But, hmm. uh, you know, so I, again, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of brutally honest on the things that, uh, you know, the things that I'm irritated by with some of these diet book authors. And, um, I, you know, that pretty much tells you where I stand it. Yeah, yeah. Now, there have been a, a few books that have come out. Obviously, there's diet books come out galore, but there's mm-hmm. one in particular I'm wondering if you've heard about um, that came out, I think it was in late 2009, uh, by Dr. Michael Aziz, The Perfect 10 Diet. Did, have you seen that one yet? I have not seen that. I don't even oh, know. Oh, he is it. such a fan of saturated fat. Really? And he, but then he totally misses the the uh, the benefits of eating meat. <laughs> so his saturated fat is totally about coconut oil and, and yeah. other sources of saturated fat. But well, he, well you, very, you bring up a very interesting point because you had said earlier that we can't just talk about low carb because it means so many different things to different people. Yep. The, the same thing is true when we talk about meat. Um, it is impossible for me to recommend factory farmed feedlot meat from a health point of view. Now, from a weight loss point of view, meat's meat, 
you know, has the same effect on your insulin, blood sugar, all that stuff. But as a, as someone who's concerned with with health, I can't recommend people going to McDonald's and eating, you know, that meat and eating the meat that they get at, you know, the average grocery store that is a combination of 8 million cows that have been, you know, fed antibiotics and steroids and hormones and all the other stuff. When we talk about grass-fed meat, we are literally talking about a different, I, I, excuse the pun, a different animal. We're talking about animals that have uh, been raised on pasture, which is their natural diet. They are not fed antibiotics because they don't get sick from the grain. They are not, you know, crammed into pens so they don't, you know, they don't need the, the, the antibiotics because they get so sick. Um, they usually are raised organically. They won't be given steroids and, and bovine growth hormone. Because they're raised on pasture and eating grass, their meat is higher in omega-3 fats and lower in inflammatory omega-6s. Their meat contains some CLA, which is a, which, which is a fat that has uh, both some anti-obesity properties and also some anti-cancer properties. So we are talking about an entirely different kind of meat. Um, I actually I attended a conference once where one of the, some of the researchers who had done these big epidemiological studies on meat eating and prostate cancer and stuff like that, um, and you know they always find correlations. And I went up to one of them and I said, "Have you you know in your epidemiological studies when you do these associations, do you make any uh, distinction between people who are eating ballpark hot dogs and bologna and salami and processed meats and 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 you know feedlot meats and people who are eating wild game or eating you know uh, like in the in these blue zones where people live the longest and they all by the way except for Loma Linda they all these areas eat meat um, less than we do but they eat some do you make any distinctions I asked him and he said absolutely not so the point is that there are tons, you, you, you have no trouble finding studies associating high meat eating diets with, you know, certain bad health outcomes like higher rates of prostate cancer. But these people are not eating the kind of meat I recommend. And um, I, so I do think that you can't just talk about the benefits of meat or the harms of meat without being clear about what kind of meat we're talking about. They are vastly, vastly different. That's right. Yeah, when, when I interviewed Dr. Aziz about that specific issue, I said, well, what about the grass-fed meats? Isn't the saturated fat? Because one, one of his uh, problems was the grain-fed meat, uh, besides the grain in it, um, had the toxins in the fat. Well, he's right, and he for is God's right. sake. He's right he about that, right. but he is. but but I don't think that that applies. I have yet to see. I've never seen a study, and I don't think there is a study that shows that eating moderate amounts or reasonable amounts of grass-fed meat in a diet that also contains a ton of vegetables and fibers, I, I would love to see a study showing that that's associated with a bad health outcome. I don't think such a study could it, it would ever show such a thing. No heart disease, no cancer, none of these things that has Nothing been Nothing that's shown out. in, in when they, because we have to remember, people need to remember how these epidemiological studies are done. They're not clinical studies. They're basically studies where they look at what people do, yeah. and then they make statistical associations. Well, people who eat high meat diets in industrial societies are eating McDonald's and Burger King and the stuff at the supermarket. And those same people tend to not eat a lot of vegetables and they don't eat a lot of fruits and they eat a lot of fast foods and they eat a high sugar diet. You put all that together, you get some pretty darn bad health outcomes. 
And yes, eating a lot of meat is associated with that eating pattern, but let's look at the other aspects of that pattern. No vegetables, no fiber, high carb, high sugar, uh, high stress, and the worst kind of meat possible. So I don't, I think that's not an indictment of meat. I think it's an indictment of an eating style that we need to change. Absolutely. And a lot of those studies, Johnny, that look at the meat, they totally neglect the carbohydrate connection. Um, Absolutely. It's it's usually filled with a lot of carbohydrate with that meat, and they totally say, oh, it's all about the fat in the meat. And it's like, well, what about this elephant in the room over here, all these carbs that they're consuming with that meat? It's certainly not healthy for them. Absolutely correct. Well, at the back of the book, after you go through these 38 uh, mostly low-carb diets, uh, Mm -hmm. you also include a chapter in there about supplements and diet drugs, which I found extremely fascinating. I take uh, quite a few supplements myself, Johnny, uh, thanks to people like you and the books that you've written on various natural cures and things like that. You've really made an impact on my life with those books. Thank you. Thank you. But you included kind of a synopsis of a lot of those, uh, regardless of which plan you follow, you kind of need to be following and and consuming some of these really basic vitamins and avoiding some of these basic diet pills like the ally and (laughs) some of those kinds of things. I'm limited because I could clearly have written an entire book, and, and, and a lot of what I wrote in Natural Cures is about supplements. I could, uh, I, I tried to limit it to things that might have an impact on weight. So, uh, you know, it's a very a very small, narrow window there in talking about what supplements may or may not help. Uh, but, for example, uh, you know, there's a lot of things I didn't talk about in there. For example, there's one, one thing that I'm really excited about for joint pain. And, and, you know, as you know, baby boomers especially, when you start to have a lot of joint pain or arthritis-related pain and uh, joint uh, issues, uh, that can keep you from being active. That and being keeping you from being active can have an impact on your brain, your heart, your weight, your everything. So uh, something there's a there's a, uh, and I didn't mention a lot of these supplements because they weren't specifically related to weight. But things like, for example, shea shea nut extract, which is mm-hmm. in a product which I don't have an ownership of or anything, but I just it's called Flex Now, and this is very exciting because it really does uh, it's been shown clinically to really reduce pain, joint pain, and, and get people more active and, and reduce their you know their their discomfort at moving around. That's something I think would be very useful and probably have an indirect uh, impact on weight because again, if you can get rid of some of that pain, people are more likely to want to move around, and that's a very big important part of health and you know ultimately of, of weight management yeah Absolutely. so you know and, and other so you know my my regimen you know for supplements omega threes, vitamin D uh, you know and then beyond that something like flex now for joints and and, and or chondroitin sulfate uh, something like coenzyme Q10 especially oh, if you're on one of those ridiculous uh, cholesterol lowering medications yeah um, you know things for the brain like acetyl L carnitine you know there are all kinds of things that I didn't really talk about mainly because the book was was focused on Wait. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I think my favorite chapter, aside from some of the earlier chapters that were new that was really uh, fascinating, is your Frequently Asked Questions chapter, because this one kind of boils down a lot of the questions. Johnny, I get every single day, and I know you do too, in your email box. It's like, well, what about this? So you address address a lot of those what about this is all through this. Oh, thank you. And and it, like, why am I stalled? Uh, uh, why do I feel lightheaded when I start on a low carb diet? A- am I going to get gallbladder uh, problems? Yeah, right. you, you just go on and on and on. Uh, you know, asking all of these questions that people are really asking. I can tell you, as somebody who does this for a living every single day, Johnny, you nailed it. You absolutely oh, you. got all the questions. I, I can tell that you, you, uh, so you definitely have uh, uh, either on your own or. or or consulted with people that, that get real emails from people. You hit the major topics. Um, Thank you. Great job. Great job. Thank you. Well, I hope the book is is, is helpful to people and, and interesting, and I hope many of them will show it to their doctors. And you know, I, I hope it makes a difference to people. Well, and Johnny, it begs the question: Is there a comeback for low carb? I know you said it's kind of made. It never a, went away. Yeah, it never yeah, went away. Well, Here's what happened. Here's what okay. happened. In 2004, we had this you know huge fad with a million different diets. A couple of studies came out and got a lot of attention and, you know, low-carb supermarkets and all of this stuff, and it became a kind of a fad. Now, let's separate what happened with the fad from the reality of eating this way. Um, In the fad, there were thousands of products that came out that were the equivalent of the low-fat snack wall cookies, except they were low-carb pastas and low-carb cereals and low-carb God knows what. They tasted awful. They didn't work. People ate tons of them. They, they did not accomplish anything. No one liked the way they tasted. And so the whole low-carb explosion of products um, kind of fizzled out. And all the way, I don't know if in your neighborhood, but here in L.A., we had low-carb supermarkets. They're all out of business. Right. Now, does that mean low-carb went out of business? <laughs> or does it mean that uh, a number of things happened? One is lower carb products became incorporated into the mainstream. Number two, all these horrible junk foods that were never any good to begin with and, and weren't even in the spirit of eating a lower carb whole food diet, uh, they have disappeared from the market. Um, and, you know, it, the public being the way it is, it's a little fickle. You know, there aren't, low carb is no longer a buzzword. However, there are a core number of people who can continue to uh, adhere to basically lower carbohydrate way of eating. Um, it's been incorporated into the mainstream, as I talked about earlier, in, in including in a lot of these books and even, like I said, in Starbucks. Um, so I think nothing really happened to low carb. It's still around. If you, re- if you think about it, it has been the way people have eaten since the beginning of the human genus. Um, this, this whole high carb, low fat thing is a relatively recent experiment in the, you know, starting around the 1970s. It's a, it's a, it's a, a pin drop in the 24 hour clock. Uh, so I don't think anything's happened to low carb except that the commercialization of a lot of the products uh, doesn't seem to be a big uh, growth industry anymore. And I think that to some extent, a lot of the concepts have become accepted in mainstream. Well, so I, I, I suppose the crux of my question kind of boils down to the cultural acceptance of low carb. Yes, we're seeing changes, places like Hardee's, Carl's Jr. having low carb options on their menu too, along with Starbucks. You know, uh, uh, I'm thinking of like the dietary recommendations, the, the new 2010 dietary recommendations by the time this airs will almost be out. Out. 
we're just not going to see the change there. We're just not going to see the changes happen there. No, I don't think we're ever going to see these changes happen in government um, in government approved or government recommended the food pyramid type things. We're never going to see that, and the reason for that is complicated and has to do with the farm bill and with the economics of the food industry. And yeah. I just don't I don't see the government ever coming out and recommending eating lower amounts of the foods that they subsidize, mm-hmm. <laughs> wheat, corn, and, and and soy. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So um, we're going to have to do this one person at a time through shows like yours and books like mine and, and just, you know, whoever hears the message gets it. But don't expect the government to come out with recommendations that reflect what you and I know to be um, the best information available. Well, and unfortunately, that's what people listen to and a lot of the government programs are based on that food pyramid and the guidelines. It's just, it's, just, it's frustrating, Johnny. <laughs> yeah. It's frustrating. Now, before I have to let you go, there is one book that was not included amongst the 38 and Uh-oh. I kind of know I kind of know why you didn't do it because it's not really a quote-unquote diet book and he'll tell you that i didn't write this to be a diet book author but i'm talking about gary tobbs's book good calories bad calories so oh, i mentioned the i've mentioned it many times i don't do it as a diet book but I, right. it, it's mentioned throughout and of yes. course i mean you, you know i love gary and i love his book and i think it's the greatest work of scholarship in this field that anyone's ever done and it it you know mine is dwarfed by that in terms of the scholarship and the, the scope and the history um, mine has a different emphasis, but, you know, certainly his is the go-to book for information about how we got, uh, how we got who we are right now with this. Yeah. And he's certainly working on a Johnny Bowden-styled version of Good Calories, Bad Calories as we speak. Uh, he's going oh, to have that, that out to kind of make it a little more palatable for the consumer because obviously Good Calories, Bad Calories was a, on a very high academic level yes. for the medical professional. But uh, yeah. the Jimmy Moores of the world would love it to be able to <laughs> to have the Johnny Bowden version of that book. And uh, he's certainly working on that and uh, hopes to have that out uh, hopefully later this year or early next yeah, year. Yeah, and he's so. been a, he, Gary's been a very big support. Supporter of mine and I of he and uh, of him and you know we have very good very nice relationship. Well, you've been listening to Dr. Johnny Bowden. He's always such a pleasure to have here on the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. His new book, uh, a new low-carb book, Living Low Carb, Controlled Carbohydrate Eating for Long-Term Weight Loss. And, Johnny, I love it when I when I pull up your book on Amazon, uh, besides your Live Longer uh, book, which is the first kind of customers who bought this also bought. That's the first one. The second one is my new book. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Lessons. I know, and I know, the same one on, on my on page, my uh, the second one after my my first book is your living low carb. Um, so we're kind of helping each other out here. So. I'm glad we have the same audience. That's great. <laughs> well, Johnny, it's Johnny, always it's such always. a pleasure having you here on this podcast Thank show. You. And thanks for telling us about uh, the new updates to your living low carb book. And I definitely recommend everybody go out and check it out. We will have a Thank link you. to it in the show notes section at thelivinglowcarbshow.com slash show notes. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jimmy. Any time and keep up the wonderful work you're doing from the publisher who brought you best-selling books by maria emmerich leanne vogel and jimmy moore comes the latest in the line of ketogenic books that are sure to rock the health community it's called the ketogenic bible by dr jacob wilson and ryan lowry it's the authoritative guide to ketosis and it's now available for purchase at amazon barnes and noble and wherever books are sold the ketogenic bible
Have you read my best-selling book, Keto Clarity, and still have trouble trying to figure out this ketogenic thing? Then let me introduce you to my latest project called Keto Clarity Academy. Visit the website ketoclarityacademy.com where we're making low-carb simple. This program is designed to help the average everyday person struggling with health issues, weight gain, and just needs a clearer understanding of what keto is all about. Our goal is to simply teach practical ways to implement a whole foods nutritional ketogenic diet for optimizing both weight loss and health. We have various services available to you, including classes on ketogenic diets based on Keto Clarity. We also have one-on-one support and consultation mentoring, as well as a 24-hour texting with an instructor. Again, go to ketoclarityacademy.com and sign up now to find your clarity about keto. Keto Clarity Academy. How would you like to test your blood ketones for just $1 per strip? Join the Keto Clarity Club at bestketonetest.com for the Keto Mojo blood ketone and blood glucose testing. And join the club to get $1 strips when purchased in vials of 50. You get to choose how often that they will ship to you and you'll still get that $1 price per strip. And while you're at bestketonetest.com, make sure you get the meter. And we also have glucose strips sold in vials of 50 and you'll get $5 off with the coupon code JIMMY. There's also the Ketonian Special kit, which allows you to get the meter, lancet, as well as a starter pack of blood ketone test strips. Again, it's bestketonetest.com for the Keto Mojo blood ketone and blood glucose testing. Bestketonetest.com. Dr. Johnny Bowden, a.k.a. the Rogue Nutritionist. He is a board-certified nutrition specialist and a nationally known expert on weight loss and nutrition. He's been on this show so many times, I can't even count, but it has been a while since he's been on. Now he's here today to talk about a very important book that's coming out very soon called The Great Cholesterol Myth, Why Lowering Your Cholesterol Won't Prevent Heart Disease and the Statin-Free Plan that will. Johnny Bowden, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here with you and, and to be talking about this such important subject. Well, and Johnny, you were recently on one of my other podcasts, the Ask the Low Carb Experts podcast, where you talked about supplements and the importance of vitamins in your diet. But you gave us a sneak peek at that point, talking about this new book on cholesterol and how this wasn't exactly the book that your publisher wanted you to write. Will you tell us that story? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, we, you and I have... A little backstory. You and I have been talking about this for uh, probably a decade. Um, the, the cholesterol issue is really at the heart of every dietary recommendation we've had in the last 30 years. Yep. Uh, and, and we can get into that a little bit later. But when you think about it, and I have thought about it, uh, it, it has colored everything we've been taught about what to eat and what not to eat. Why have you been told not to eat saturated fat? Because it raises cholesterol, which leads to heart disease. So you can see how this whole cholesterol issue has been woven into the fabric of everything we've been taught about what's healthy and what's not healthy. Okay, that said, um, my publisher came to me and said, 
how about we do a book about how to lower cholesterol naturally with foods and supplements? You know, I've done a book on the, the most effective natural cures on earth. And, uh, you know, I've done a book on foods and I've done a book on dieting. So they thought it was a natural fit to come up with a great program for lowering cholesterol naturally. And I said to them, um, I don't think I'm the guy to write that book. And they said, well, why not? And I said, because I don't think lowering cholesterol matters a whit. <laughs> and they were absolutely astonished. Right. And they said, what are you talking about? Don't doctors all think that, you know, this is very important? I said, yes, they all do think that, and they are all wrong. <laughs> and, um, of course, this led to quite a lively discussion. Um, and uh, ultimately, I wound up, uh, you know, sending them a lot of the cholesterol cholesterol uh, deniers, if you will. I, I hate to, to call us that because it makes it sound like some kind of culty, crazy, you know, faction, when in fact there's really a lot of very serious scientists around the, the world who have been questioning this dogma, who have been publishing a reanalysis of the, of, the, uh, of the studies that supposedly show how important cholesterol is, and um, it's been very hard to get that message out there. But I sent a lot of that to my publisher, and I began to discuss it with them, and uh, slowly but surely, they came around to the idea that perhaps a book about why cholesterol wasn't important was even better than the book about how to lower it. And uh, I have to give them a lot of credit. They, they really bucked the system on this. This is a mainstream publisher. Yeah, as you know, it is ridiculously difficult to get this information out there. There's tremendous resistance to it. I've had magazines, uh, editors of magazines tell me offline, look, you know, we agree with you. We can't publish this. We can't talk about this. It, I think the tide is beginning to change now, but it was a very difficult uphill battle to get the publisher to write, to, to to, to get behind a book that basically said everything we have learned about cholesterol is wrong. Uh, one of the ways that um, they agreed to do this was they said, well, we can't just publish it, but you've got to have a co-author and it's got to be a board-certified cardiologist. I said, no problem. I called my friend up, Steve Sinatra, one of the most respected cardiologists in the country, a leading light in integrative medicine. I said, look, I'm going to do this book on why cholesterol is a crock. You interested? He said, am I interested? He turned out to be even more passionate passionate on the subject than I am. Wow. So now we've got this book, The Great Cholesterol Myth, and that's what we're talking about today. So Johnny, what is the big fear by these publishers about doing a book like this one? Uh, is it because there's pharmaceutical companies that are involved in in funding some of their work? I mean, I'm not understanding why there's such a fear. Well, it, it's kind of, you know, anytime you have a, a, a an accepted dogma, you know, the world is flat, you know, anything like like that. Change takes a very long time. It means bucking a system. It means in academia going against the grain. It means not getting grants for publication. I mean, there's all kinds of, uh, of, of um, obstacles towards adopting a very contrarian position, especially when all of the major health organizations, the American Medical Association, the National Cholesterol Education Program, all of these things, the American Dietetic Association, the, the, the god-awful American Dietetic Association, Association. These these groups have been, you know, promulgating the same uh, dogma for a very, very long time, and it is very difficult to come out there and say something which they're all afraid uh, you're giving, you know, terrible medical advice and they're going to be sued. I, I, for a while there, I, you know, I've been, as you know, Jimmy, been, been writing for the Huffington Post for many years. I was one of the first, if not the first, person to blog on the Huffington Post in the area of health and, and, and wellness. And I have never had a post 
censored ever until I started writing about cholesterol. And then I found out that Dean Ornish is the medical director yeah. of the Huffington Post. And it's been very difficult to get any of this stuff out there. Um, I've had, when we did the book, here's a little aside, just to show you the kind of resistance. When we when we did the book, we went, you know, for blurbs, as you, you're very well aware of how that works. You know, you go to your friends and you go to people in the industry and you send them the, the copies and you hope that they're going to give you a nice blurb because that, you know, that goes on the back of the book. And we got some of the most fantastic people to blurb this book. Christian Northrup, Mark Hyman, Daniel Amen. I mean, just a who's who. Uh, I wrote to a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, who is a professor at an Ivy League school. I'm not going to mention the school because I don't want anybody to know who it was. But it was a professor at a, uh, a bold name Ivy League school that everybody in the world knows what it is. And they, we sent him the book and he wrote back, I am a huge fan of Johnny's. I am a huge fan of this material. Unfortunately, I must remain a fan in secret, I am uh, totally afraid of what the pharmaceutical companies would do to me and my reputation if I were to endorse this book. Wow. So it, there is a lot of, uh, you know, you're, you're really bucking the system with this. And, and by the way, we're not the first people to be saying that cholesterol uh, is is is, uh, is not the target for heart disease. We're not the first people to be questioning the studies that, that seem to, uh, you know, that the pharmaceutical companies want you to believe uh, show the, the advantage of lowering cholesterol and how many lives are saved by lowering cholesterol and how wonderful these drugs like Lipitor and Zocar are. We're not the first person to, to call uh, the emperor naked in this situation. The problem is that all the books that came before us, nobody read except other health professionals. I mean, you, they're just not, they never broke through to the mainstream. They never got a really, the audience that they deserved. And so they sit on the library shelves of all these health professionals like myself. And unfortunately, the public doesn't hear about them. We're hoping that our book, because it is written for the general public, it's not too technical, it's it's written in a language that people can understand, it's published by a mainstream publisher, we're hoping that this book finally will break through and get this information out to people because they so desperately need to know it. Well, and the message is definitely there. I'm looking through the various chapters, and and, and you're right. I mean, uh, any Johnny Bowden book that I've ever written is going to be consumer-friendly. So anybody that's like, oh, don't get into all the technical geekiness. No, no, no. Apparently, you've never read Johnny Bowden if you think it's going to be like that. <laughs> you've done a great job over the years, my friend, of uh, really breaking it down and making it very palatable to virtually uh, anyone who wants to learn more about a subject. Um, and, and you do a great job kind of right off the bat of, of explaining why it's important to be skeptical about cholesterol because far too often people go see their Dr. Johnny and they'll uh, say, oh, you need to be on a statin drug because your cholesterol is 215 and it needs right. to be below 200. Right. And yet you say, you know what? You, you got to wait. Wait. Learn more. There, there's something wrong here. You, you, you don't have a statin deficiency. There's something else happening. There's everything wrong with that picture. And, and what, what it can really be summed up as is it's practicing medicine by the numbers. You're not treating patients. You're treating numbers. And, and that's a whole other discussion, but it's probably uh, never been more clear than in the whole area of treating high cholesterol, which is not a disease. Right. right. Um, and is actually not turning out to not 
not even be a very good predictor of heart disease. It's a kind of lousy as a risk factor, let alone not being a disease on its own. So, uh, and we have a, another mission with this book before we get into the details, Jimmy. And yep. it's something I think that you you would, you and I will share, even though we're not always on the same side of everything politically. But I know that we are on the same side of of this issue, and that is families. I know you're uh, someone who cares a lot about family values and about our the, the next generation, about children. And uh, there, there's another thing at foot here that people need to know about. You're about to see one of the most extensive and insidious and and well-funded campaigns we've ever seen to convince people to put their kids on statin drugs. It's already started. You've already got a couple of studies, and I'm, I'm air quoting those, uh, being leaked to the media about how kids' cholesterol levels are going up, and you know we really got to uh, nip this heart disease thing in the bud, and maybe these children should be put on statins. And when that happens, or if that happens, we're going to be looking at another thalidomide. Your kids, if you're listening to me right now, if you're within, within range of my voice, and you have a child, let me tell you something: your child's brain is not fully grown until he's 25. The cerebral cortex doesn't finish growing till you're 25. Cholesterol is vitally needed for memory, for thinking, for feelings, for immune function, for sexual function. You lower the cholesterol in a child's brain before that brain is grown and you are looking at disaster. Do not do it. If you've got a doctor who tells you your kid should be on a statin drug, change doctors. <laughs> if I could get no other message out about this than that, I would feel that we had we had really achieved something. And now we can go back to discussing the details of it, but I want you to get that message. Do not put your kids on a statin drug. Well, and I think one of the things that's come up within our community, and of course, we're a little more conscious of it. We're, we're that uh, probably very small minority that has all those cholesterol books on our uh, shelves right now. Right. <laughs> uh, but but it, one that is concerning of people is the whole LDLP uh, versus LDLC uh, issue and whether LDLP is an important thing. Uh, I didn't really see a lot about that in this book because this is more for the general public. But do you have any thoughts about LDLP? LDLP and its importance? I think, uh, you mean LDLB? Uh, no, I'm talking about, it's either APOB or LDLP. Oh, I see. Yeah, let, let me let me back up on that one. Uh, there's a bigger and more important and more general distinction to be made about L- LDL before we uh, get into that, and and it's this: for years we've been told that cholesterol can be measured in two forms, right. quote unquote good and quote unquote bad. HDL is the quote unquote good cholesterol. Right. LDL is the so-called bad cholesterol. Okay. That information is at least 20 years out of date. Right. We now know that there are about four or five different fractions, different types of LDL, and at least three or four different types of HDL. They do not all behave the same way. Right. Let's look at the two most important fractions of LDL, LDL LDL-A and LDL-B. 
LDLA looks under a microscope like a big old cotton ball, and it does just about as much damage as a cotton ball can do. It doesn't stick to anything. It doesn't penetrate anything. It just basically is benign, harmless, doesn't mean a thing. LDLB is the real bad guy. That one looks like a BB gun pellet. It's what my, my co-author Steve Sinatra calls the angry LDL. This is the LDL that tends to get inflamed. This is the LDL that gets stuck in the endothelial wall of the arteries. This is the stuff that leads eventually to plaque. If you don't know what kind of LDL you have, you are shooting bullets at a target with a blindfold on. Trying to, you know, when a doctor looks and says, oh, your LDL is high, you need to know about what kind of LDL is high. Because as, as you and I know, and, and here we go back to the dietary recommendations, when you eat a lot of saturated fat, your cholesterol will go up. But what actually happens is your good cholesterol goes up more than your quote-unquote bad, and your bad, your so-called bad cholesterol, LDL, the good kind of LDL, the cotton ball kind, goes way up, and the nasty little inflamed kind goes way down. Your doctor just looks at that overall number and says, uh-oh, let's put him on a statin, when in fact your, your lipid profile has just gotten better. Right. So it is absolutely imperative. And we said this on the Dr. Oz show. If you're getting tested for cholesterol, you insist upon a particle test. That tells you what kind of LDL you have. Is it the A form or the B form? Because without knowing that, you're, you know nothing. We'll return to our interview after a brief word from our sponsor. Hey, fans of the Live and La Vida Low Carb Show. This is Jimmy Moore. And just wanted to let you know we will be taking the months of November and December off. But you have a chance to impact the very first episodes of 2013. It's what we call Encore Week every year. And right now, you can vote for who you'd like to hear during Encore Week 2013. Scroll through our podcast archives beginning with Episode 5. 512 through the present, listen to any of those interviews you might have missed, and you can nominate up to five nominees uh, to hear another interview from, and tell us why you want to hear from them. Send me an email, livinglowcarbman at charter.net. Be sure to put Encore Week in the subject line, and if you get those to me no later than Friday, December 7th, 2012, we will air those on the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show coming up December 31st, 2012 through January 4th, 2013. Again, for Encore Week 2013. And now, back to our interview. So, Johnny, it sounds like you subscribe to the LDL particle size being much more important than the LDL particle number. Well, they're both important. Okay. They're both important, and they tend to go. They, they're very. And the particles test will tell you both. It'll tell you how many particles you have, but more importantly, it will tell you what type they are. So, for example, if I went, if you, my cholesterol was, you know, three hundred. My, let's say my LDL was 150, okay? My, my LDL is 150, but 149 of that is the big cotton balls. I don't care. Right. If my LDL is 99, most doctors would be thrilled. But if 98 of them are the nasty little angry LDL B particles, I'm in trouble. Right. So you must get your particle test to know what you're actually dealing with. And the best particle test, uh, one of them is the NMR lipoprofile test. That's one of them, absolutely. In case anybody wants to have that run. Uh, I recently, uh, just last week, had that run, Johnny, and I have the numbers in front of me. And my small LDL, the the kind you don't want, is like 6%, which means 94% are the large fluffy. 
Wow, that's fantastic. And I'll bet you if you were going to a conventional doctor and you just looked at your overall LDL number, they'd put you on a statin drug. In a lickety split minute. Right. <laughs> and we got we should get into a little bit later why we are uh, kind of opposed to statin drugs as uh, in, in general, although Steve's a little more moderate on this. Uh, Steve will occasionally prescribe a statin drug for the very small population in which they have been shown to be helpful. That is a very small population of middle-aged men who've already had a heart attack. Oh, and not familial hypercholesterolemia? Uh, that, that's, uh, you know what? If we could put that on hold, that's a, it's, it's a special, it, it only affects less, you know, a couple percent of the population. I, I would prefer to talk, if you wouldn't mind, uh, because that's really a special area with a lot of controversy associated sure. with it. And I want to get this, this message is hard enough for people to understand. <laughs> I want to, I want to get it out so that it's clear, bullet pointed. You can take it to the bank. You know what we were talking about in this interview. So I, right. Prefer if you wouldn't mind that we, we stick with the you know the the ninety eight percent of the population right. that does not have uh, 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 hypercholesterolemia. So, John, the only reason I brought it up is a lot of times whenever I hear people uh, say they go to their doctor and they have any cholesterol that's three hundred or above, their doctor automatically assumes they are FH, and yeah. that's not always the case. No, it isn't. Um, that's why I was bringing it up. So. It's also interesting to know, you know, and we point this out in the book and by the way every single uh, sentence in that book because of my publisher's nervousness about yeah. putting this out I have never been fact checked like this in my life you think Politico does a job we had three different fact checkers and copy editors working on this and double checking everything from the you know college degree of some writer that they hired to write for the consensus committee back in 1984 all the way to every study was vetted and checked so we uh, we have references for every single thing that we are, that we every statement that we make in the book. And, and one of those statements is this. In the Framingham study, which is the longest running study of heart disease, started in 1948, where they've been following these people in Framingham, Massachusetts for decades and decades and looking at, you know, connections between what they eat and whether they die and, you know, heart disease and cholesterol, all these things. In the Framingham study, the people who lived the longest had the highest cholesterol. Wow. So high cholesterol is actually protective in older people. It's very interesting. Yeah. If I had to summarize your book, it would be this. We need to stop vilifying fat as an enemy in heart disease, and we need to start putting the focus on sugar as the real enemy in heart disease. Well, that's 100% true. And what's interesting, Jimmy, is that a lot of people don't know this. But, you know, I, I like to use this example. Um, if you're old enough to remember the the, um, the VHS wars, when, when, when home recording, I mean, it, it seems like centuries ago now with our DVRs and everything digital and downloading, but at one time when, when, when taping first came out, we had VHS, and there were two different opposing systems. There was Sony's Betamax, and there was Philips VHS, and much like with DVD with the blue, you know, Blu-rays and high definition, there was a, a kind of a format war, and VHS won, and VHS was the inferior system. And you talk to any recording engineer in the world, even today, they still use Betamax because it was superior, but it didn't have the same PR. Now, here's what happened with cholesterol. Back in the 70s, there were two competing theories about what was causing heart disease. One said it was fat. One said it was sugar. The wrong theory won. 
Hmm. And it won the same way that VHS won. It had better PR. It had more, uh, it had spokespeople who were very, very devoted, had a lot of, you know, uh, of backing and, and uh, a lot of behind the scenes manipulation. And they managed to get that theory accepted when, in fact, the theory put forth by John Yutkin in Britain, by the physician John Yutkin, and, and laid out in the book uh, Sweet and Dangerous, is really the, the theory that was the right one all along. Right. And, and all we're calling for is a re-examination of that evidence because Yutkin was right. Sugar is a far more danger to your heart than fat ever was. Right. Well, and the problem is people have bought into the cholesterol lie that we talked about earlier because of the echo chamber effect, basically. Everybody's quoting everybody, and when you say a lie often enough, eventually people begin to think it's true. Yeah, it's called the big lie theory, and I hate to tell you who first first popularized it. It was Adolf Hitler. But it's the same basic idea. If you just continue to repeat the same lie often often enough uh, in in a kind of, uh, you know, philosophic echo chamber, if you will, it becomes accepted truth. And and the fact is, you know, cholesterol, 50%, more than 50% of hospital admissions for heart disease are for people who have normal cholesterol. And fully 50%, if not more, of people with elevated cholesterol have absolutely healthy hearts. Cholesterol is a lousy predictor of heart disease, folks. Yeah, and we're, yeah. we're treating we're treating this innocuous molecule, which is absolutely essential for brain health, for immune function, uh, uh, for sexual function. We're treating this innocuous molecule like it is a disease, and concentrating on that while ignoring the real causes of heart disease. And that's the real tragedy of this foc- this insane obsessive focus on lowering cholesterol. Well, we have an informational paradox going on right now because you have one side that says, oh, no, 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 it's saturated fat that's leading to higher inflammation levels, which is causing all of these issues with heart disease and people dying. And then you've got some of this show who say, no, 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 it's not the saturated fat, it's the sugar and the refined carbohydrates and the starchy carbs that turn to sugar in the body that do the exact same thing. So people don't know who to believe or what's true. Well, that's that's always that's always been a problem with a lot of things in which there are lots of facts, and we need people to interpret what those what those facts mean. You know, um, Nate Silver, the the the, the, the terrific um, statistician who, who writes the five twenty eight blog for the New York Times, and has been so a, a incredibly accurate at predicting you know everything from baseball outcomes to election outcomes, um, and and is a real savant when it comes to statistics. He has a wonderful saying uh, in his new book, which is that numbers don't speak for themselves. They need people to speak for them. You look at any set of numbers, any set of data about any phenomena in the world, and by selectively reporting some of them and downplaying others, you can make a very, very different case for what those numbers mean. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example in diet, uh, alcohol. Um, everybody knows that, uh, that alcohol consumption in, in, in you know moderate amounts um, reduces the risk of heart disease. What everybody doesn't know is that it also increases the risk of breast cancer. So, you know, if you're selling alcohol, you're going to play down the breast cancer part and build up the heart disease part. And that's exactly what happens with the statin drugs. Um, the, the side effects on statin drugs have been so woefully underreported, and we, and we have data on this because there's a wonderful study by Beatrice Golem at, at Stanford University, which they actually looked at the kinds of side effects that have been reported uh, 
because of statin drugs, muscle pain, fatigue, um, memory loss, loss of libido, all of these things. She found that 65% of doctors did not report those side effects to MedWatch, which is what monitors side effects and drugs. They did not believe they had been so effectively marketed by the pharmaceutical companies that they did not believe their patients that these side effects were related to the drugs they were prescribing. They dismissed them and therefore did not report them. Wow. So we know for a fact, we have good research showing that the side effects of statin drugs are woefully underreported. Yeah. Yeah, uh, th- there was a great film, and I think I told you about it when you were on Ask the Low Carb Experts, called Statin Nation. I had the filmmaker on this show a couple months ago, so uh, definitely go check out Statin Nation, where uh, Justin Smith, the filmmaker, gets into all of uh, these heavy hitters we were talking about from the Thinks program, um, and and just does a great job of outlining how we got into this mess with statins, and a lot of the great information you share in, in your brand new book as well. So uh, check it out, check it out. Uh, I want to skip to the uh, solutions that you provide in the back because I think that's what's going to be most helpful f- helpful for people who pick up a copy of The Great Cholesterol Myth. Um, mm-hmm. Most of this audience already knows uh, that cholesterol is probably not a big deal, but yet – there's still people that are worried uh, about high cholesterol, and you, you do a great job of outlining why they probably don't need to be as worried about it as they think, and that the worrying in and of itself may be <laughs> contributing as much to the heart disease risk as anything. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that, because I was going to say that uh, I think one way to approach this is to look at what we should be worried about, not, not just what we shouldn't be worried about. Right. And the four things that we believe are at the heart of heart disease if you will, the things that are the real contributors, the real causes of heart disease, um, and we talk about all of them in the book, uh, one of them uh, is inflammation, Yep. and one of them, the one that you just alluded to, is stress, and it's very interesting that the more you worry about anything, the more your cholesterol goes up, and we have good data on that as well. Steve himself actually uh, did, did some very interesting testing on his own cholesterol uh, during med school, and he, he was always puzzled then because he didn't have a, a, a kind of philosophical framework for understanding it. He was always puzzled that like on a day when he was doing rounds and he was very stressful and, and, and he hadn't eaten and, and he was you know worried about losing patience and it was the beginning of it, he would measure his cholesterol and it would be through the roof and he would go, I don't understand this. I mean, I haven't even eaten anything today and it's, it's, you know, it's gone way up. How does that happen? And now we know why and how it happens. Stress actually influences cholesterol. Um, so stress is one of the causes of heart disease. Inflammation is one of them. We talk about a couple of the others in the book, but Let's talk about what we can do about them because that is, as you said, the really important uh, information here. There's so much we can do to protect our hearts and to uh, keep ourselves from being a statistic and and to stay out of that office in the first place where you'd get the prescription for the statin drug. And by the way, we're not anti-conventional medicine. You know, know, believe me, conventional medicine, Western medicine has has done wonderful things. The polio vaccination, antibiotics, you know, terrific things. The problem is that, uh, you know, we 
have medicalized absolutely everything. And we have come up, you know, with a pharmaceutical solution to absolutely everything. And in the in the interim, we've, we've actually come up with pharmaceutical solutions to things that aren't problems, like high cholesterol, instead of looking at the solutions to heart disease, which is what we really care about. When you think about it, does anybody listening to this really care what their cholesterol is? No. You, you don't have any symptoms of high cholesterol. You care about heart disease. And you've been told that they're the same thing. They're not the same thing. So let's talk about the thing we really care about, which is heart disease and how to prevent it. Yeah, I love treating disease and not symptoms. Yes. Um, and too often doctors are doing inversely, um, and that's why so many people are on satin drugs and all these therapies they probably don't need to be. You know, it's funny. High cholesterol isn't even a symptom. High blood pressure. Now, that's a symptom, and that's a risk factor we care very much about. That's a serious risk factor. I want to be very clear that we're not saying that everything conventional medicine has ever told us is wrong. They're right about blood pressure. I take that very seriously. High cholesterol, I couldn't care less about. Yeah. Now, as far as action plans go, you give some very clear things. I, I love the whole eat this, not that kind of style uh, of what to do and what not to do uh, that you provide. And a lot of it's going to be familiar, dumping sugar, dumping processed carbohydrates, things that this audience already do uh, quite well. But the do's were very interesting to me because it's a lot of the information you've been sharing for years. Uh, you've written a, a lot of books about you know good foods that are healthy to eat and how to do it well. Uh, talk about some of those foods that are essential to a good heart healthy diet. Well, you want the, you because inflammation is at the heart of heart disease. You want the most anti-inflammatory diet you can come up with. Um, now, you know, our vegan friends like to say that, you know, that means don't eat red meat. I don't agree with that at all. Uh, I do agree that there are many wonderful natural anti-inflammatories in the plant kingdom, in the, in the fruits and vegetable kingdom, and that even us paleo-like people, people who are pretty, you know, low-carb, uh, higher-fat, higher-protein, lower-carb uh, by nature, we could still benefit by more vegetables and fruits that have lots of anti-inflammatories in them. Apples, for example, and onions and uh, berries and cherries and all of these things that have, you know, flavonoids and anthocyanins and all these wonderful natural anti-inflammatories. Very, very important. Fish oil, omega-3s, the most anti-inflammatory molecule on the planet. Supplements like resveratrol and curcumin, coenzyme Q10, all of these things are very protective for the heart. Anti-inflammatory, antioxidants, these are the things that we should be concentrating on in our diet. And certainly, uh, you know, red meat, I'm a, a very, very big believer that, that meat should always be, if you can afford it, if you can find it, grass-fed is an entirely different different animal than the stuff you get in the supermarket. And it, it is true that it's hard to recommend supermarket meat or fast food meat because God knows what's in that. It's very inflammatory, has high omega-6 content, low omega-3 content. But if you're eating pasture-fed beef, you got nothing to worry about. Yep, yep. Johnny, I really love uh, in the back where you are giving more tips on how to like lower stress levels. You threw in this this concept that uh, Mark Sisson's really been a big proponent of over the past couple of years, and that's play uh, and how it's spontaneous and it helps lower stress, which then in turn lowers cholesterol, which in turn lowers heart disease. I mean, it's just it's just a good thing, and yet not enough adults engage in play or kids either. Play, um, you know, all 
it's so interesting. It's um, the kinds of things that lower stress have such a profound effect on almost every disease uh, because stress. I'm I'm not willing to say stress causes every disease. Like you know, some really radical people on 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 one side of the fence who you know, oh, she has cancer. It must be because you know it's repressed anger. I don't believe any of that stuff. But what I do believe is that stress makes every single disease worse. It can make recovery impossible. It can lengthen the time it takes to get better. It can uh, it can exacerbate a condition. It can bring on an attack. In the case of, for example, asthma or herpes, both of which can be brought on by stress. They're not caused by stress, but they can be brought on by stress. Yeah. And the same thing is true with heart disease. It's not uh, it's not that stress increases cholesterol. That's probably the least of what it does. It increases the hormone cortisol, which in turn in- and increases blood pressure, uh, which in- it increases inflammation. It does all the things that set up a perfect storm for heart disease. So, so stress reduction, stress management is a very, very important part of any program to prevent heart disease. And all the things that reduce stress, and you know what, every single person listening to this knows what they are for them. You could make, if, I, if we were doing a workshop now and I said, take out a pad and pencil, write down five things you love to do where you feel wonderful and relaxed. Everybody, nobody would have any trouble coming up with five things. Right. That's your stress reduction program. I don't care if it's laying at the beach reading a Danielle Steele novel. I don't care if it's playing chess. I don't care if it's playing with your kids, petting an animal, making love, walking in the sun, being out in the green, whatever it is that lowers your heart rate, uh, puts your brain into those alpha waves. If it's meditation, if it's deep breathing, these things, these are not luxuries. These are things we absolutely have to do if we're going to manage our stress levels. And if we don't manage our stress levels, we are looking at health disasters. Just not eating bonbons. (laughs) (laughs) That could be stress reducing, but it's got a downside as well. Exactly, exactly. His name is Dr. Johnny Bowden. The name of his book, The Great Cholesterol Myth, Why Lowering Your Cholesterol Won't Prevent Heart Disease and the Statin-Free Plan That Will. He co-wrote it with Dr. Stephen Sinatra. And what we didn't say was the uh, foreword was written by the great uh, doctors Michael and Mary Dan Eads from Protein Power. Uh, Really been big believers in this message for many years themselves. Uh, You definitely did a great job of putting together a, a virtual who's who of all the great people uh, who are promoting this message, I gave you good blurbs. Uh, Dr. Uh, William Davis, one of them. Uh, oh, love belly. Yeah. So great work out there. Visit his website, johnnybowden.com. That's J-O-N-N-Y-B-O-W-D-E-N.com to learn more about Johnny's great work. And Johnny, we wish you well with this book. Uh, I see it's doing very well already on Amazon and sure to be a New York Times bestseller very soon. Oh, we hope so. Thank you so much. Jimmy for all the support. Coming up next time on the Living La Vida Low Carb Show, we'll have the author of a new book entitled Keto Guidebook. Her name, Martina Johansson. Get show notes for today's episode at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. We'll see you next time. Disc of Light.